Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of CityWalk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with CityWalk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search CityWalk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Morning. Morning, those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, Before we dive into uh, what is going to be a series that we're going to walk through through the, the summer... Uh, I wanted to tell you about something that's coming up that we're super excited about. Maybe the maybe my favorite thing that we do throughout for the entire year might be the, my favorite thing that we've ever done in the history of our church is we have a thing called City Sports Camp. And this past uh, summer we did it very for the very first time. And basically, what we do is we put on a free sports camp. Uh, in July for kids in the city, for kids in our church. It's a free sports camp. And last year we saw over 40 children come to know Jesus as their Savior at this event. It was an awesome week and we are getting ready to do it again this summer. In fact, today is the first day that you can register. If you have kids, if you have uh, some neighbor kids you want to get involved, I I hope that you will. They can actually get registered. We're going to put some stuff out on social media this week. We only have 100 spots, and so when those 100 spots get taken, uh, that's all. We we have a waiting list, but man, I want to encourage you to get your kids registered. Invite kids from our community to be registered. When you see something on social media about it, share it. Uh, It's going to be a very, very great uh, event. You can actually go into the app, into the announcements, and that's where you can sign up your kids. And uh, we're going to have a great time the month of July. We have a team coming from Texas. We have a team coming from Georgia to help us put it on. It's going to be a really, really good week. And so uh, get signed up, get your kids and grandkids signed up, and it's going to be fun. So, So here's my question, totally off the subject. How many of you have seen Top Gun so far? Got a few? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just, just a few uh, days ago, uh, probably about a week and a half ago, we were having a conversation, just a few of us, about, man, what are some of the iconic movies that, that we all like? And we were talking about, you know what? There's not been a lot recently, a lot, of been, a lot of superhero movies the last decade, but what are some of those iconic movies that, man, in the, on, you know, Sunday, rainy afternoons, it, they're three or four decades old. They were made in the 80s and the 90s, and they're just those iconic movies that you still like to watch. And we were trying to kind of come up with a list of them. And you know, some of those movies like Top Gun, they were, man, made, you know, several decades ago. And then because they were so good, there's been sequels made. There's been, some of them have totally been remade. I mean, when we went and watched, four of us went, we watched Top Gun this Friday, man, I, we walked away like, this is probably a top five movie of all time. It was so good. It was a great movie. And, and, and another movie that, man, is one of those iconic movies for, for me is anything Sylvester Stallone. Like, I will watch Rocky Balboa or Rambo fight from a nursing home 
I, I'll pay money. If, if Rocky's 95 years old and he's in a nursing home fighting it like the guy in the room next to him, I'm paying money to go watch that. If he's Rambo going to save somebody and he's doing it from a nurse, like, I, it doesn't matter. And you know, those iconic movies that you just, you love and, and you watch them and you tell everybody about them and you, you know, you've watched them 20, 30 times. You can repeat lines. Some of the lines in the movies are like just phrases we use in our culture. I mean, you know those types of movies that you just, you love the stories, you love the characters in the movies. And whether it's a movie, maybe a, a book, or, or maybe it's somebody's real life, we lean into a good story. Like I said, if a movie, if it's maybe you're a, a, somebody that really likes to read, or you just meant even somebody's real life, when we hear a good story, we lean in. And, and you know this, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, even if you're a parent or an older brother or sister, you, you know this. You know that if you're a teacher or you're a coach, you, you know that, man, when you're trying to get some, a truth across in a way that, that kids will remember, you share a story. You share an example. If you're a big brother or big sister, or if you're a, a mom or dad, grandma and grandpa, and you're trying to calm down your little kid or your little sister and kind of get them ready for bed, you read them a story because they quiet down and they lean in because, man, stories are powerful. And stories are important, and, and we lean into stories. And you may not believe this, but your story is important. Your story is important, and in fact, I would say that your story and your example are two of the tools that, you, that God would like to use most to make a difference and, and, and impact people's lives. And stories, they're, they're so important. It's why this past week when we had five children get baptized, if you were with us this past week, you, you remember at the end of the service, we went out here and we, we had five children get baptized. And before every single one of them got baptized, they all shared a story. They shared their testimony of how they came to know Jesus. And we've done that in every single baptism that we've had from the beginning of our church. Before someone gets baptized, they share their story of how they came to know Christ because stories are powerful. They're important. We lean in. And today what we want to do is we want to look at a story from a guy by the name of James. James is a guy that lived 2,000 years ago. And today we're going to begin a series that's going to take us through most of the summer. And we're going to begin a series and we're going to start the series in the book of James that he wrote almost 2,000 years ago. And we're going to begin it by hearing a little bit about James's story because James's story is, is very important and honestly, it's super intriguing. And James chapter one, verse one, it starts really, really simply. And it says this. James. First word in James's letter, 2,000-year-old letter, he starts his letter out, James. And to the people that are reading this letter, this is an important introduction because who James was and the story that he had, man, were really important to these people he was writing to. Because James was a guy that was the half-brother of Jesus. So, so imagine, imagine being the guy that actually was the roommate of Jesus. 
James is, is probably the oldest of four brothers, and, and he's the, the brother of Jesus. And, and so James, when he starts his, his letter, James, man, people lean in because this is the half-brother of Jesus. And so just, just think about it. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or if you're not some, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe you are somebody that, that faith's important, maybe you're kind of investigating faith, but, but you've heard of Jesus. And you've, you've heard of Jesus and you probably know a little bit about him, but imagine being the guy that grew up with him. Like, like was Jesus to James, was he the guy that, and maybe you have people like this in, in your, your life, that he kind of gets on your nerves because he does everything right. But you couldn't get mad at him because he was so nice. He, he annoyed you maybe a little bit because he seemed to do things right all the time. But then about the time you wanted to get annoyed with him, he was just so sweet and nice. And so it was hard to get mad. And, and imagine for, for most of us, we think of Jesus when he was 30 years old through when he was 33, because if you read the scriptures, that's the time frame that the scriptures were written. So we, we hear about three years of Jesus's life, but James was with Jesus from the beginning. And, and James was with Jesus and, and he, man, he like, uh, just imagine, just think about your brother and your sister. Like, Jesus smelled just like everybody else smelled. Jesus did things that probably annoyed his family just like everybody does. James lived with Jesus that whole time. And, and here's an interesting thought. We, we believe based on history and based on what we know that, that Joseph, the, the, the guy that was Jesus' father and James' father, he, he passed away most likely when they were both very young. And so Jesus being older than James, was, was Jesus like a father figure? Was he like a father figure to James? I mean, what was it like to grow up with Jesus? What was it like to, to, to watch Jesus every second of the day? James knew Jesus probably better than anybody. And, and here's what we know about Jesus. And, and here's what we know about this situation. Man, man. We don't know a lot about, you know, what happened to Jesus from, from zero to 30 and all the interactions with his family. But here's what we know. When Jesus decided to, to, to make his, when he started kind of his public ministry when he was 30 years old, he, he, his public ministry was when he was 30 through 33. When he began his public ministry, the people in his hometown the people that were in his family, they did not buy what Jesus was selling. Like Jesus started his public ministry. He had all these people following him and a bunch of people were believing and listening. But we know from what the scripture says that his family wasn't part of that group. The people in his hometown, they were not buying Jesus and what he was talking about. And in fact, Matthew tells us about it in Matthew chapter 13. It says this. He, Jesus, went to his hometown, Nazareth, and he began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? They're like, who is this guy? What's Je I mean, where did Jesus? We know Jesus. We watched this kid grow up. Where's he getting this wisdom? Where's he getting all this power? And, and it goes on. It says this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, didn't we buy our table from Jesus? Like, isn't this the carpenter's son? 
Isn't this the guy that we saw with, like, kind of the, the peasant family that built some of our furniture? Like, isn't that this guy? And it goes on, isn't, isn't his mother Mary? You know, Mary, is, is this a different Jesus? I think this is Mary's son and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Isn't, isn't James and Jesus? You know, this is the family. And, and his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. I mean, basically they're saying, who does this guy think he is? Like, we know Jesus. We, we, we know this carpenter's kid. I mean, he is for sure nobody special. Where, where's he getting all this authority to talk the way he's talking and all these people from other places think he's a big deal? Like, like who's this guy? And that's kind of how he was treated by his hometown and by his family. And it says this, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I mean, he was getting no love from the family, no love from the people he played on teams with growing up, no love from anybody in his hometown. They were like, we're just not buying it. We know who you are. And in another account, John, John, this is Matthew's, you know, we just read what Matthew said, but John tells us about another account where Jesus has, has just kind of gone through a kind of an up and down time period in his ministry. He's, he's just fed 5,000 people with one lunch. So, man, that was pretty spectacular. He, he's walked on water, which again, you know what? We can't do that. So Jesus did that pretty, pretty spectacular. That the crowds are starting to follow Jesus. Like he has all these people following him to the point where Jesus says, hey, a lot of you guys are just my fans, but you're not my disciples. And so Jesus kind of raised the bar to run a bunch of them off. And he did. He ran a bunch of them off. He raised the bar. And because he, he wasn't about having the biggest fan club, he wanted disciples. And so this is what's going on. Jesus has just done these miraculous miracles. All these people are following him. Jesus says, I don't, I don't want all these people following me. They're not really here for me. They're here to watch me do things. And so he, he kind of cleans it out a little bit. And then he starts to be basically given death threats. He starts to be, people want him dead. And so this is where Jesus is when John tells us about this interaction that he has with his family. John says this in John chapter 7. It says, after this, after all miracles and after what I just told you, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. Okay. What, what, wasn't trying to get killed. Wasn't time for him to die. So he, he went to Galilee instead of Judea because he didn't want to die. It says, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. So they were in the middle of a festival. The Jewish, it was a probably September, October. They were having a festival to kind of commemorate when they had left Egypt and they lived out in the wilderness. And so they were, they were having a festival to kind of remember. And it says this. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. Basically, his brothers say, Go to the place where people want to kill you. Jesus has come to where they're at. 
He, he's there for a specific reason, and, and his brothers, they're, they're not huge fans of him. They're not huge fans of his ministry, and so they say, hey, why don't you go where the people want to kill you? Go there. And it says this in verse 4, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Basically what his brothers are saying, if you're all that, go, go to the place and show off your stuff. Like go, go. If you say you're the man, go be the man and go to a different place and specifically go to the place where there's kind of the people that really want you out. And so, I mean, this is, this is his brothers talking. And then the very next phrase, it says this, for not even his brothers believed in him so even i mean you think about it when when your life is things aren't going good and you've got something going on in life that's just not not good and maybe it's something at work maybe it's something at school maybe it's something in a relationship kind of out outside of your family like usually you think man what if i can just get home my you know my family will love me and my family will stick up for me my family out there at least that's a safe place and for Jesus, it wasn't like this. For Jesus, it was, hey, we don't, buy what, we don't buy what you're saying, Jesus. In fact, we don't even want you here. In fact, you can just go to the place where, man, if you die, you die. Go, go to that place. You, you talk a big game, so why don't you go show up in those areas? We don't want you here. We don't believe in what you're talking about. And James was a part of those brothers that said, hey, we're not buying it. We don't even want you around here. And see, James, and think about this. James saw his miracles. James, he, he experienced and even was probably a little annoyed by the crowds. Like, what's all these crowds around our family? He, he heard his brother's teaching, but he, but he just didn't buy it. He didn't believe. And about three years after Jesus began this ministry and began his public ministry, James and his family went through a tragic, tragic weekend. Their brother Jesus, who they didn't believe what he was saying, but he was still their brother, he was taken by the Romans. He was taken by the Romans, and he was sentenced to be crucified. And James and his family, man, they, they knew what crucifixion was about. They knew that crucifixion, that there was no more painful or humiliating way to die. There was no more, like no worse sentence. But that's what Jesus was sentenced to. And so James and Mary and, and the other brothers and sisters on this weekend where they, they hadn't really bought into everything Jesus was saying, all they know now is that their brother Jesus is being killed by the Romans in a humiliating and painful way. I mean, imagine. Imagine the sadness. Imagine the confusion. Uh, imagine the frustration James must have felt. He had, he had lost his father, Joseph, and now his brother was gone. And all for what? Why? I mean, you, you didn't believe what Jesus was saying, and this is why he's being killed. And so for you, it even makes it more frustrating because he's dying for nothing. He's being crucified. He's being tortured. He's being humiliated. My mom's heart is breaking for nothing. That's where James was. 
before Jesus died. That's where James was the weekend Jesus was crucified. He didn't believe. He was confused, frustrated. There's no point to all this. But then something happened. Something happened that changed everything for James. In fact, Paul tells us about it in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is what it says. It says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm about to pass on to you the most important thing. He says this, that Christ died for your sins, for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then what Paul does is he begins to share of specific people and groups of people that Jesus, after his death and resurrection, people that he appeared to. And so he kind of kind of goes down the list. He says he, he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter. Then, then he appeared to the twelve. Then after he spent some time with Peter, he, he kind of appeared to his guys. The twelve guys that were hit kind of the closest, he appeared to them. Then it says, after that it says, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And, and Paul, I like how he adds this. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Paul's like, man, if you don't believe me, like you can go talk to them. They're still alive, most of them. So, so he, Jesus appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12, and, and then, man, he appeared to 500 people all at once. And man, you can go talk to Bob and Sally and Jim and Samantha because they're still alive. They'll tell you about Jesus coming and seeing them. And then it says this, then he appeared to James. He appeared to his brother, and then, then to the apostles. And I don't know if it happened like this, but I don't know if James began to kind of hear rumblings, because he, he, it seems to be like he wasn't the first guy that Jesus appeared to. I wonder if James began to hear some rumblings that, that, that you know what, there's, there's these rumors that my brother Jesus has appeared to these people, and that he's not really dead, and and, and I don't know if, if James started to have some excitement in his heart, if, if he started to kind of feel like, could this be, and, and was, was kind of confused, or if he was just like, I'm not buying it, they, they're smoking crack, this can't be. I, I don't know if he was at a spot where, where he was like, man, he was afraid to hope because he, he, he didn't want to get hurt and be let down. I don't know where he was, but we know this. He wasn't the first person that Jesus appeared to. But at some point, Jesus said, I'm going to go see my brother James. And he appeared alive to his brother James. And, and here's what we do know. James didn't buy into Jesus' message before he died. But after seeing his brother resurrected, something changed. And we know that because of how he starts his letter that we're studying. He starts his letter this way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, James, a servant. A servant of who, James? I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, this word servant, it basically is, is the same word for slave. It means someone who belongs to another, someone who doesn't have any ownership rights of, on their own. And James, he introduces himself, and he doesn't play the I'm Jesus' brother card. He introduces himself, James, a servant of Jesus. Not just Jesus, but Lord Jesus, Master, Savior, Messiah. And so from the very beginning of his letter, he wants his, his readers to know that, hey, my name is James, and I am a servant of my master, the Lord, Savior, Messiah, God, Jesus Christ. I buy into it now. And he says this, me, the servant of Jesus, I'm writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. So who was he writing to? Who was he writing this letter to? He was writing this letter to Jewish Christians who had, because of persecution, had to flee Jerusalem and, and were literally spread out all over the world. And he was writing a letter. In fact, Acts chapter 8 talks about what happened to all these people that were at one time, they were kind of centered in Jerusalem and that's where everybody was. That was kind of where, where, where the whole Jesus movement started, but because of persecution, they were scattered. It says this in, in Acts chapter 8. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. There's a map, I think. It might be a little bit hard to see, but, but if you look, this is Jerusalem again. You can't see it, but just trust me, it says Jerusalem right here. So Jerusalem, that's kind of where it all started. That's where, hey, Peter preached a message on Pentecost. Bunch, thousands of people came to know Jesus. Thousands of people, I mean, just in this city, the city was being turned upside down because so many people were starting to follow Jesus after he resurrected. But then because of persecution, because the, the government started to say, you know what, we've got to stamp out these Christians. They're becoming too powerful. These followers of the way is what they called it. We've got, we got to do something. And so the severe persecution broke out. And so these people, they just started to scatter. You can see all over. And this is how the spread of the Jesus movement happened. It actually happened because of persecution. And so James, he's, he's writing this letter. And he's, he's writing because James, he's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Like he's gone from skeptic to now he's the servant of Jesus. And he's actually the pastor of probably the most influential church in the whole movement. The one in Jerusalem. And so he writes this letter. He writes it to these people that were scattered all over the known world. See, James, after starting as a skeptical family member, after he saw his brother raised from the dead, everything changed for him. He, he went from being a skeptical family member to somebody who said, you know what, I am a servant of Jesus. And James dedicated his entire life to this movement that Jesus started. 
And in about 45 AD, which is 15 to 20 years after Jesus had risen from the dead, he writes this letter to Christians that were scattered all over the world. See, James and his story, man, they're in, it's an intriguing story. Whether you're somebody that's a follower of Jesus or whether you're somebody that's maybe skeptical of this whole Jesus thing, it's intriguing to, to listen to the story of James because of who he is. Because he was Jesus' brother. And for a long time, he was very skeptical of Jesus. But then everything changed for him. He, he went from skeptic to servant. He gave his whole life to this thing. And no matter where you find yourself, whether you're watching online or you're here this morning, no matter where you find yourself as it relates to faith or what you think about Jesus, there's a couple takeaways that I think are applicable to every single one of us, no matter where you are on the faith journey. And it's a couple takeaways from James's story. And the first one I think is real important for us to think about. The first takeaway is this. Being close to the truth doesn't matter if you don't embrace it personally. Let me say that again, because this is real important. One of the things we learn from James's story is that being close to the truth doesn't matter if you don't embrace it personally. I mean, think about it. James lived with Jesus. How much, clo- I mean, how much closer can you be? Like, like he was with Jesus probably more than anybody was with Jesus. He was so close to the truth. But yet he didn't buy it. it. Being close to the truth didn't do, I mean, didn't make it real for him. He had to embrace it personally. I mean, it doesn't matter what your grandpa believes. It doesn't matter if you have sores on your backside from being in church so much. It doesn't matter how close we are to the truth. It doesn't matter if, if your grandpa was a pastor, or if your mom's godly, or if your, your auntie reads the Bible to you. It doesn't matter if you don't embrace it personally. It's, it's a personal decision. James decided when he saw Jesus risen from the dead that he would embrace it personally. And that's when it changed him. But being close to the truth, it doesn't change anything. I mean, you, you may have been, you, you may have grown up in a family where you went to church every week. You may have grown up in a family where there were Bibles all around your house. You may have grown up in a family where your grandma always prayed for you and, and talked to you about God. And all those things are good. And I hope, those, I mean, I hope you had a lot of people around you that were sharing truth with you. But, but it doesn't matter how close we are to truth if we don't embrace it personally. If we don't embrace the fact that we are sinners, that we have disobeyed God, and that because of our disobedience, because of our sin, we, we, we have a Savior. His name's Jesus, who came to earth, lived a sinless life, and at the age of 33, died on a cross, rose from the grave for us, that He did it for us. You can hear about that. You can come on Easter Sunday and celebrate that. You can know all the ins and outs of the Bible stories. But if you don't embrace it personally, you'll still spend an eternity without God. And it will never change you. And what a tragedy. What a tragedy to be the Judas that walked with Jesus and saw 
Jesus do all the miracles we read about and never embrace it. And his eternity is affected because of it. How much closer to the truth could you be? And so one of the things we learn from James's story is that being close to the truth doesn't matter if you don't embrace it personally. The second thing that we, that we kind of take away from James's story is this, that Jesus is alive and worthy of our all. I mean, if, if James were here, he, he would say, man, I, I didn't buy it for a long time. I didn't buy it for a long time, and, and the weekend my brother died was, was tragic for our family. But, but then everything changed because I saw my brother alive. And I was so impacted that I, I literally dedicated the rest of my life to take the message that Jesus is alive and worthy of my all. I, I spent the rest of my life sharing that message. And one of the things we, we take away from James's story is that, man, Jesus is alive. And he's worthy of our all because that's what James's testimony is. He, he literally spent the rest of his life to his dying breath talking about his brother and sharing his, his brother's message. Isaac Watts, a a guy that wrote a lot of songs. He actually wrote 750 songs. Some of them you would know, even if you didn't grow up in church. He, he wrote Joy to the World. He wrote other popular songs uh, that you might know. And, and he wrote them in the 1700s. It's been a while. And one of the hymns that he wrote was probably my favorite hymn of all time. And he wrote it in 1707. And it's simply, the title of it is this, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the way he ends this, this song, he, he ends it with this phrase. And I think Isaac says it very well. He says what James probably would say if he were here today. Here's how Isaac ends this song. He says this, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Isaac says, man, if I had all of nature, if I had everything in this earth, and if I could give everything to this, in this earth to you, God, it would be too small of a present because of what you've done for me. Because of what you've done, man, everything in, in the realm of nature, if it were mine, it wouldn't be a big enough present to give you because of the love and the sacrifice that you showed me. It, it just, and he just ends it this way. It just, it demands my soul. It, it demands my life. It demands my all. In fact, in, in Romans, Paul said it this way. He says, because of everything you've done, Jesus, my reasonable service, my reasonable act of worship is to give you my life and use my life so other people can experience what I've received. It's just my reasonable act of worship. 
It's what any reasonable person would do when they realize everything that you've done for me. And that was James's story. It started with, man, I don't buy into this Jesus thing. I think it's hogwash. I think he's smoking crack. I'm just annoyed by all these people that are following him. They think he's a big deal. Nobody in our hometown likes him. And then he, then he watched his brother die. He watched his mother crushed. And, and man, all, just this tragedy for his family. But then his brother came and saw him. And James says, man, after I saw him, everything changed. After I saw resurrected Jesus, I gave up. Man, I, I surrendered. I believed. I gave my life for it all. In fact, tradition tells us that like Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders hated James. I mean, again, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, kind of the center of this whole thing. And so, man, he was kind of the, one of those people that the, the, the religious people, they, he was a target for them because he was the pastor of a very influential church right in their backyard. And so they hated him. They hated him so much that they had him thrown off of the temple and, and beaten to death with clubs. And as James was dying, he, like his brother, began to pray for the forgiveness of the people that were killing him. To, to James's very last breath, he was proclaiming this message that Jesus is alive and he's worthy of everything I have. He's worthy. He's worth it. See, James's story and his example scream, Jesus is alive and worthy of my all. So let me ask you a question. Whether you're watching online, whether you're here with us this morning, whether you're somebody that's been following Jesus for a long time, or whether you're somebody that's here that's saying, I don't even know if I buy into this whole thing. Let, let me ask you a question that is, is applicable to all of us. It's something I've thought about this week. What is your story, Scream? James's story? Man, it, it shouted, it screamed, Jesus is alive. And he's worthy of my all. What is your story, Scream? See, my life, like yours, tells a story. It tells a story that people are reading. My kids are reading my story. You're reading my story. People that I, I don't know but I interact with throughout the week are reading my story. And they're reading yours too. Your kids are reading your story, your brothers, your sisters, your, your, the people that you work with, the people that are, that are at the grocery store that you go to, the people that are on the sports field that you coach on. They're reading your story. Your story and my story are telling us a message. So, so the question is, man, what, what does my story scream? When people read my story, what do they take away? When people read your story, what do they take away? Because here's the thing. My story, like yours, will impact people, good or bad. You're, some of you, 
have been impacted terribly because of people in your past. And, and man, their life wasn't a good story. And you've had to deal with some of the tragedy, some of the baggage because of their story. Long after you're gone, there's going to be people that are going to still be affected by your story and my story. They're going to either be affected in a good way, like we are by James's story, or they're going to be in counseling because of our story. Or they are going to need to be in counseling because of our story. So the question is, what does your story scream? And let me, let me kind of ask it in a different way. What story do you want people to read? I mean, if you're honest, hey, this is where my story is right now. My, my, my story, it, it says something that I, I don't really want said. It's, it's leaving a mark that I don't really want left. If we're on, man, we can be honest, can't we? We can be honest. There's been seasons in my life that, man, I am so glad the story didn't end there. Because if it would have ended there, it would have ended tragically. And I'm so glad for God's grace. And I would imagine some of you are the same way. But here's the question. What story do you want people to read of your life? See, desire is good, but it's not enough. You can say, oh, I want, I want them to and, you know, fill in the blank. But, but it takes more than just, hey, I want this. Uh, a couple things that I think are so helpful to telling the story that I, I think most of you want to tell. Maybe you don't want to, to tell the story that I think you do, but I, I think most of you that are watching online or you're here this morning, you want your life to tell a story that matters for eternity. You want your life to tell a story that impacts generation after generation after generation for Jesus and for things that matter. You want there to be more people in heaven because of your story. That's what I, I'm guessing. I'm, that's what I'm, I, I think that you probably want. And if that's true, then, then there's a couple things that, that I think it's important that we think about. And the, and the first one is this. What do you put in your mind? Because your story is being affected by what you allow in your mind, whether you like it or I like it or not. It just is what it is. This summer, we're saying that, you know what? We're, we're, we've asked you guys, and we've actually given you a journal, and if you didn't get one, get one at the Next Steps table on your way out. We, we've said, hey, let's put in our mind this summer the book of James. Let's walk through the book of James together. Let's read it together. Let's discuss it together in our small groups. If you're a teenager, let's talk about it in youth group. Let's put the story of James and the letter he wrote, let's put it in our mind. And you know what James's story talks about? What his letter talks about? It talks about how to use your tongue. It talks about how to treat people that are differently, different than you. It talks about how to deal with your heart talks about a lot of different things that I think all of us could use a little help in. And so one of the things that I think is so important to the story that you probably want to tell is determining what you're going to put in your mind. And my encouragement to you is put the book of James in your mind this week. This week, this is what I want to encourage you to read. I want to encourage you to put this in your mind couple times this week. Read James 1, 1 through 18. Maybe read it two or three times this week. This will literally take you 90 seconds. 
most of you, two minutes, three minutes to read 18 verses. I encourage you to put that in your mind this week, because then we're going to talk about it next week. Uh, another thing that I think is so important, is so important to, that will help you tell the story you want to, is not just what you put in your mind, but who you surround yourself with. Here's what I found out just over years of working with different people and even looking at my own life. My story looks a lot like the story of people I hang out with the most. Just is what it is. The people you hang out with the most, the people that influence you the most, your stories will probably end up looking very similar in the end. And so my encouragement to you this summer, and I talked about this last week, is be a part of a city group. Join a group. Join a group here at church where, man, we, we meet hour, hour and a half once a week in, in houses all over our city. And, man, it's so good to be a part of a group because you're surrounding yourself with imperfect people that are trying to walk with Jesus. So, I mean, my group, we meet, we're the only one that actually meets here we meet on Wednesday nights. And I told my group this last week. I said, you know what? Every Wednesday night, I don't want to come here. I'm like, oh, that's not really a good thing to tell people in your group. But I, yeah, I don't really, I want to stay home. I want to sleep. I want to watch a movie. I want to drink a ginger ale and chill. But every time I come and I'm in my group, every, I'm telling every single time, I'm so thankful. Because the people in my group are helping me write a better story. And I need that. And you do too. The people you surround yourself with and the things you put in your mind will determine a lot of what your story says in the end. And let me close with this. And if you don't know this, you need to know this. God wants to help you write a story that will impact someone else's eternity. He wants your story to impact not just your own life, but other people's. And he's here to help you write that story, just like he was there for James. But you and I have to decide, are we going to say yes to that invitation? Are we going to be like, you know what? I'll just do my own thing, God. I'll just kind of let this thing play out the way I want to let it play out, and, and we'll just see how it all ends. And he's saying, man, oh, you've only got 70, 80, 90 years here. Come, man, I've, I've got a story for you to tell. I've got an impact for you to make. But, man, you've got to listen. You've got to trust. And so we determine whether we let God help us write our story. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for James. And Lord, I'm so thankful that the scriptures are full of examples of people that are imperfect, people that were skeptical, people that made huge mistakes that sinned egregiously. Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful that the Bible is full of imperfect people because, man, we can relate so well. And Lord, I am thank you for James. I just thank you that... that you worked in your own brother's life. And that a guy that was super skeptical of you, Jesus, and your movement and your message, he watched you die. He felt the, the pain and the sorrow of your death. But then 
Not long after that, he saw you alive and it changed everything. It changed everything. And, and, and he, he died telling people about you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning and you would say, hey, Chris, man, I, I, I want to tell a story that leaves a mark for eternity. I want to tell a story that pleases God. Just in the quietness of this room, what's stopping you from telling that story now? Just in your heart, just think about it. Like, like what's going on in your life? Who are you surrounding yourself with? What are you filling your mind with that you'd say, Chris, if I'm, if I'm going to be honest, man, this stuff's been affecting my story in a big way. And, and if, if I'm going to tell a story that matters, if I'm going to tell a story that, that is going to leave a legacy that I want to leave, I've got to change some things. And, and here's the great thing. The great thing is that Jesus actually will empower you to change. And so you don't have to do it on your own. But you need to take a step. And for some of you, some it may just be, you know what, just repenting. Say, what does repent mean, Chris? It means just turning around. You're going one way, you're going towards one, one group of people, you're filling your mind with, one, so with some stuff that you know you shouldn't, and you're just saying, you know what, God, you were right, I was wrong, I'm turning around, I'm turning my back on those things, and I'm going to go your way. I'm going to fill my mind with your truth. I'm going to surround myself with people that will push me to follow you. It's up to you. It's up to me. Very personal decision. What story do you want to tell with your life? Lord, I pray that people in this room and those watching online or listening to this podcast would be willing to take the courageous step of turning from sin, of turning from things that have been affecting their story, maybe some of them for decades. And Lord, I pray that they would courageously turn. And when they turn, they're going to see you with your hands wide open. And God, you're inviting us to tell a better story. I pray that they would follow you with their life, that they would fill their mind with your word, and that they would surround themselves with other people that are doing the same. In Jesus' name, amen.